welcome, welcome, welcome everybody to the Hockey Think Tank podcast brought to you by the HockeyThinkTank.com, a website for all players, parents, and coaches to go to get a little bit of education and a little bit of inspiration regarding the greatest game on the planet. What an episode we have for you guys here today. We bring on all-around good guy, hilarious individual, and one of the best teammates that Jeff has ever had, Wacy Rabbit. Uh, Wacy's an unreal guy uh, who grew up in Lethbridge, Alberta. Uh, he played five years in the WHL for the Saskatoon Blades and uh, the Vancouver Giants, where he won a Memorial Cup in 2007. Uh, he's also the WHL Humanitarian of the Year while he was in Saskatoon. Uh, he's played over 13 years pro, over 300 games in the AHL, um, played in seven different countries, and uh, has been a teammate of Jeff's on a couple different occasions. Uh, he was also voted. Uh, went to the finals for the hockey news. It was the best name in hockey competition. Uh, so Wacy Rabbit, we we're really, really excited to have him on the podcast. But before we do get to him, let's get it over to the talent of the podcast, Jeff Lavecchio. Jeff, what's going on today? Protein. Not good. No, that's it. That's all I got today, man. <laughs> I was up at 5 a.m., took a nap. But you know what? I'll tell you what. I was stoked for this podcast you know Wacy's one of my best friends in hockey hilariously our relationship started off pretty rocky I came out of college when I signed with Boston got sent to the American League and I took his spot so he was not happy he was getting bag skated because I took his spot and when you don't play in the American League you're getting roasted like you got to stay out after practice on days before a game and game day and you're getting bagged and I remember leaving the rink one day and watching him get bagged and him just like giving me the evil eye kind of (laughs) but now looking back like he wasn't actually mad like that I know him like he's just a funny guy and that's just kind of how he is because he's the best teammate ever he would never actually be mad but so like I thought he hated me and then we wound up becoming best friends a week later Um, so just a great guy I mean, a true leader in his community with uh, the native people in, in both Canada and the U.S. and Aboriginal people. And, um, you know, he's he's a shining light of hope for, for the people in those communities. And he's one of the few guys to be ever be drafted. And, you know, he's he, he's doing it. He's played 13 years pro. He's had a great career. He's made a lot of money. He's lived all over the world. He's just a good, good person. And I'm, I'm glad we had him on the podcast today. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We have some mutual teammates as well. A couple of guys that I played with have played with them. And yeah, kind of like similar. They'd say like he's one of the best guys ever. So um, really cool to hear uh, some of his stories of, uh, you know, his upbringing in the Aboriginal community. Um, and then just like, yeah, I've played so many years pro and, and just, I mean, the stories that he has and um, the, the insight and perspective that he has. I mean, it's, it's just awesome because he was one of those guys, right? Like he was a glue guy. You know, he wasn't on teams because he was the most skilled guy like he was the person you know kind of like yourself who had to you know be better than everybody else at doing the little things to to be able to to make it and so really 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 interesting to hear his take and uh was a lot of fun to get to talk to a pretty funny guy too yeah he's a beauty and I, I love that we got to talk about uh face-offs you know there's so many things on this podcast that we get to talk about every day and I feel like every episode we try and get into something new and that just came up organically. 
Wacy's nasty at face-offs. So we asked him, you know, how do you do face-offs? What's your process? What are you doing when you go in there? And you ask anybody who's played with or against Wacy, and they'll tell you how good at face-offs he is and how important of a skill it is. So I was really excited that, you know, just organically something came up naturally, and we talked about something that's going to help our listeners big time here. Yeah, one of the things I actually – I'm mad I didn't ask him about it while we had him on, but I'll ask you the question too is, you know, the – kind of like the difference of opinion in terms of face-off plays. So how, is, how important is it to have like set face-off plays after each one? How many face-off plays versus like just having like almost like a mindset? Um, you know, like do you know what I mean by that question? Yeah, totally. But I guess I want to know what level you're talking about. You're talking about pro, you're talking about college, juniors, or you're talking about minor hockey, anything below juniors. So I'm talking about, I mean, it's kind of all encompassing because for me, like it's, it's kind of the same. Like, I feel like a lot of teams at the higher levels get so bogged down in face off, actual face off plays that might work like one out of 10 times. But you know, you put all this time and effort into making sure that instead of like, like making sure that everybody just knows their job, you know, having like two or three things, maybe four things that you need to do um, after a win, after a loss, and just kind of like having almost like concepts instead of like set face-off plays, you know? Yeah, it's such, man, that's such a good question. I think obviously anything below, I don't know, U16, AAA, probably just like have the concepts. Um, I think I think face-off plays have their place, just more so everyone's on the same page. And when you're in big games, like, you know, like you, I'm not saying you have to be a robot and you have to do this, but okay, we're going to have three face-off plays in the D zone, three face-off plays in the O zone. It's going to start by, if we win, this guy's going to the net to open up space, D-man, you go down the wall, and then then kind of from there, you read and react. But like then everyone knows, okay, like if this happens, which it probably is going to 50% of the time, you know, whatever it is, 30% of the time, it's going to go where you want it to. You're going to do this and it's going to set up everyone in these positions and now you go play. So I think it's kind of just like um, a very concrete outline, but it's not like this has to happen because it's hockey. It might go off a skate. A guy might lose the puck, you know, um, in pro it's, it's big time because if you have a good face off play and you got a good face off, man, you know, you might score 10 goals a year off that and 10 goals is a lot of goals, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I'm not saying don't have face-off plays, like I but I think minimal face-off plays. Like there's teams yeah. that have like books, you yeah, know. Yeah, that's ridiculous. And uh, you know, I think having like you said like three or four different plays that you can do in each zone um and just execute those really well because at the end of the day, like face-off plays only work when everything happens perfectly. Perfect. Right? You know what I mean? And and that could be negated by good face-off intensity by the other team too. So like I feel like a lot of times when we talk about face-offs, we talk more about um, you know, where to go, what to do, which is important, but at the end of the day, if you don't have face-off intensity, it all goes for naught. And uh, you know, we talked about it with Wacy how, you know, winning draws is, is a five-man unit thing. It's not just a, a center versus a center and um I just think that gets lost in uh in the shuffle sometimes. For sure. And, and something that I was really bad at when I got to juniors was face-off intensity. I was kind of always just standing there. And like my, my guy, my check, so I'm a left winger, so the other team's right winger, all the time when I was younger, now that I look back, would just like blow right by me. I wasn't engaging. 
And I got to juniors and uh-uh, pee-pee slap. That's not working, Jeffrey. <laughs> that is not going to fly here. You will not play if you're going to get roasted. So you really got first thing, step into your check, but step into them so that your leg is in front of his. You're closer to the dot more often than not so that you can get to that loose puck or you can jump in on the four check right away or help your, your, you know, your D man out by setting a pick. Like it's a big deal. Winning faceoffs is massive. I mean, you look at all the metrics now and I'm not a metrics guy, so uh, you could probably speak way more to this than I can, but it just makes sense that the team who has the puck more probably is going to score more goals and probably is going to win more games. So if there's, I have no idea how many, face-offs are in a game you know let's just say i don't know 50 40 right if you win 80 percent of those you have the puck you're starting with the puck 80 percent more than the other team just off of face-offs i mean that's massive for both getting out of your zone getting a shot if you're in the offensive zone which then could lead to a scoring chance or just controlling the puck in the neutral zone so your your time of possessing the puck just from winning face-offs it's got to go up it, it dramatically that's why they're so important yeah. not because you're trying to score a goal every single time it's puck possession and i'm a coach that i totally believe in puck possession i would much rather see a d-man skate up the ice his partner follow underneath him for a rocking horse or a hinge whatever you want to call it instead of getting in trouble and dumping it i'd rather see you hinge it back i'd rather see my team hinge it three four times keep the puck than dump it in more often than not, obviously. I'd rather them make a mistake with the puck as they're younger and learning than just dump it like a bunch of idiots and robots that any coach can turn them into as they get older. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I agree. Let me ask you this, though, because I, I find this like hilarious when coaches talk about their team as being a puck possession team. It's like, especially at the younger ages, it's like, yeah, we're, we're a puck possession team. And I always kind of sit there and I always kind of laugh because I'm like, like, isn't that kind of like the point? <laughs> like, isn't, isn't everybody want to be a puck possession to, yeah. team? <laughs> you know? yeah. But it's like, it, it goes back to it. We talk about this with Adam and Brandon. Like, you know, people, it's just buzzwords, right? Everybody, if you ask coaches all the time, like they're not going to give you answers. They're going to give you buzzwords. But it's like, have an original thought. Have an original opinion. Like, oh yeah, we want to be a puck possession team. Well, it's like, yeah, I, duh. Like, yeah, I know. <laughs> Uh-huh. What, what do you think? Yeah, I always just laugh when people say that. Yeah, and, and, and you know, we want to play fast. Well, it's like, yeah, everyone wants to play fast. Like, duh. But, like, you know, it's it's so hard. And we talk about this all the time. Like, I want my guys to win games. I want them to win every single game they play. I want them to want to win every single game they play. And I'm sure we could have won more games if I was just like, dump it in all the time. That's not helping the kids get better. I'd rather see them make a mistake by trying to do maybe a little too much or try and skate the puck in the zone, fake the shot, do a Gretzky pull up and try and hit a late guy. Okay. If you mess up the pass, you know what? You're getting better. You're working on possession. You're working on, you know, vision and all these things that when you get older, you might not have the opportunity to really try those because then when you mess up, you're cut. So I'd rather those things happen. And yeah, you want to play fast. Yeah. You want to have possession, but like teach the kids what that means. Don't just say, we're going to play fast. We're just going to always move the puck forward. Well, I mean, if the other team is playing a one, three, one and their D man's back in the zone and your play fast is just get it in as soon as you can. If their D man's back, they're waiting for the puck. He's recovering it. And now they've got the puck. So you're playing fast sucks. It did nothing, you know? So, you know, just, just, 
have an original thought, like Tope said, think the game, think of ways to make the kids force them to get better, not just, you know, try and win games and play fast and, you know, do all that kind of stupid stuff. <laughs> well, that, I mean, we've talked about this before, like the whole dumping in versus, you know, carrying it in at the younger levels debate. I feel like, I feel like we need to have a little bit of a conversation about the benefits of dumping it in at the, at the pro levels, right? Like at the pro college junior levels and, and kind of what that means because you watch the NHL playoffs. So think about it. So for everybody listening, think about you're a defenseman. Okay. And you're playing against a team in a seven game series and that team makes you turn and go retrieve pucks. And you know, you're going to get hit every time. Right. Yep. Right. That sucks. <laughs> I Big time. ask me, ask me a hundred people who will say, and, and ask them if they like to get hit when they retrieve pucks as a defenseman, a hundred of them will say no. Right. So when it comes to dumping it in and those kinds of tactics, like that's kind of why you do it. Right. Or, or you're just cutting your losses because you don't want to make a mistake, which when you're playing in the NHL playoffs is understandable. Um, so in that sense, and you know, I've watched a lot of different games. Like you can watch, like specifically when you're scouting, if I'm scouting a defenseman, I wa- actually want the other team to dump the puck in because I want to see how much courage that guy has going back and retrieving pucks. Right. Is he get like, what was it? The Dougie Hamilton against Ovechkin. Like Yikes. I tweeted about that, that like that, oh boy, that was bad, Oof. but that's what dumping it in does. It now Dougie Hamilton, he's already going back and getting gotten hit. What was that game five? Maybe of, yeah. of that series. He's, he's had to go back and retrieve pucks and get hit. Maybe let's say 20 to 25 times. Now he's thinking twice a little bit about going back and getting that puck. Right. So, you know, that that's where dumping it again, it limits mistakes. So again, a lot of goals are scored off transition. So it limits mistakes for the other team going back to score. Yes. And also there's val- validity to, you know, a defenseman having to go back and retrieve pucks. That sucks. So that's kind of like in the pro game, the older people game, that's why people do it. Um, but again, I agree with you. I mean, at the youth levels, I mean, let the kids make plays, let the kids make mistakes. And, and that's, I just, I think it was important to kind of talk about almost the benefits and why to dump the puck in and why teams do it at the older levels too, you know? Yeah, and a hundred percent. And I mean, if you're coming up the ice and you got two guys back checking you, you're at the end of the shift, dumping it in is not a bad play. That's where it's okay. But if you're coming up the ice and the the rest of your team's changing, and so are they, and you're dog tired, instead of just ripping it in at the red line, if you got time, pull up, come back. If your D man jumps out on the ice, pass it back to him. Obviously, if he's open and it makes sense, now you're keeping the puck. You're allowing all your fresh guys to come on. Maybe you can attack then while they're changing or catch them in a change or, or something. Then you just keep the puck instead of just dumping it, giving it away. Also, conversely, on the other side of that, for me, I didn't have the best hands. Partly, probably because I always was dumping it in, like if I didn't have a play, because I was scared to make that turnover. But like a soft chip to yourself around a D-man, that's a good play, like if you're getting to it. Um, Something I really like doing in pro is if I was coming up the ice, I'd always tell my wingers, my far side winger, like if their D-men are super tight gap, fly up the ice and I'll ice it off the backboards in a way that it'll bounce out into the slot and he'll skate into a breakaway. And I used to do that to myself all the time where if I was skating in a one on two, I'd shoot it off the backboards in a way where it would come out and I would split the D skating because when they turn, it would like mess them up. 
And then I come into the puck. You ask anybody, they're like, oh, that's the Lavecchio. He'd dump it off the backboards and get to the puck first, walking into a shot. Or I'd throw it off the goalie's pads in a way where I knew where his rebound would go and I would get to it first. Like, I think that's a smart way to dump it as opposed to just dumping it to dump it. That's where I, I have a problem with dumping it to dump it, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And again, there's there's tactics and there's strategy to dumping the puck in, right? If you're putting the puck in the corner, uh, kind of where it dies, kind of where the boards are, like really, really close to the boards, like that's a tough retrieval for a defenseman because now he's got to take a different angle to go back and get the puck, um, you know, and, and he's got to escape out and that's really, really hard. And I think I saw Tyson Berry do it a bunch of times yesterday. Oh my God, is he good going back on getting retrievals? He, like unreal watching him play. Um, but yeah, there's hey, like... And let's talk about that real quick. Also, conversely, as a D-man, that is a skill. Yeah. I tell all the D-man I coach this year, look, you're sprinting back. If you don't shoulder check at least once or twice to know, A, where guys are, where guys that are coming at you on the forecheck are, B, where your players are, so where your art outs are, and so you know how much time you have, you need to be working on that as a D-man because it'll save your life. And you'll make you look like a better player because you know where to go with the puck when you get it, how much time you have, all that stuff. So if my D-men didn't shoulder check in practice, I was losing my mind on them because I know how important it is. Yeah, I would actually lose my mind on his partner. Um, ah, not talking to him. Not talking, but also working hard to get to a spot where he can – You know, Benny Sire, who I coached with at Cornell, like he called him a lifeline right? You're, you're the lifeline of your partner. Because a lot of times, as we talked about before, when you're going back to retrieve a puck and you know, you're going to get hit, that sucks. And your mind is not a hundred percent. in what play should I make? Part of your mind is I need to make sure I don't get hurt right now. So if you have a defense partner who works hard to get to a spot to be a support, and he's also telling you what to do, like, Oh my God, that is, that's legitimately a lifeline. Like he is helping you or a pick. pick. Yeah. You guys are close to each other. And, and, you know, say it's me and you playing defense and I'm on the left D you're on the right D they dump it into my corner, but you're close to me. You can just, without taking a penalty, take an angle skating to where you turn in front of that four checker. And then you as the right D man, I'm going back to get the puck. You're like, I'm picking, I'm picking little time, little time. That is going to help me so much. And you made me a better player and our team, a better team by doing a pick that took you one extra stride to skate in the guy's way. It is massive. Now everyone on the team is better. Now you're going to have the puck more. Now you're going to be in the offensive zone more. Now you're going to get more points, which is what everyone cares about. So like those little things, helping your teammates out and forwards, you can do it too. If you're on the back check, step in front of the four checkers because it'll give your defenseman more time. That off four checker who's coming in is going to panic a little bit and now your D-man's going to have more time to get you the puck as the forward. So you made yourself better by stepping in front of that four checker. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I started like – I've started coaching more towards the end of last year, coaching the players without the puck a lot more and focusing on that. Like Because even when you talk about like the dump it in versus carry it in, a lot of that has to do with your support. Like if you don't have a play to be made, you kind of have to dump the puck in. Yep. Um, and so like whose fault is that? that's probably the fault of your line mates and, and your teammates because they haven't gotten open for you. I think that's, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just working hard away from the puck and being smart away from the puck because a lot of times, you know, the youth kids, like they, if they don't have the puck, they're just kind of passengers and they're watching, right? I think the best players and the best coaches teach 
what to do away from the puck, how to get open. Um, because at the end of the day, I think that's it's such an important skill, you know. I, I totally agree, man. It's massive. And that's where talking comes into play. And we've talked about that quite a bit and it is just huge. So, um, I totally agree with you. And, uh, I know we got off topic here, but I think we put out some more good, uh, good info for people here on, on hockey. <laughs> let's do <laughs> let's that do, hockey. <laughs> let's do that hockey. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, cool. Well, this was an awesome interview with Wacey. We had a really good time with it. Obviously, Jeff, one of your best buddies in the game. So had to have been really cool for you to, uh, to reconnect with them here today. Um, but great story. Great guy. Uh, a lot of good information on this one. So without further ado, let's head it on over to Wacey Rabbit. We are so excited to have on this episode of the podcast, we have one of Jeff Lavecchio's favorite teammates of all time. He's a WHL champion, a uh, draft pick of the Boston Bruins, and from the Hockey News poll a couple years ago, he was a finalist for the best name in hockey, Wacy Rabbit. Wacy, how are we doing today? I'm good. It's hot down here in Florida. I hope you guys are staying cool. I'm about to enjoy the spring. Wacy, um, I'd just like to talk real quick. So, so the listeners, we, you know, we got a lot of them now. Your Twitter bio. Anybody who doesn't follow <laughs> Wacy Rabbit on Twitter, the only thing this guy's Twitter bio says, and I quote, tall, dark, and handsome, dot, 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 I'm none of the above. <laughs> <laughs> My I, favorite I bio on Twitter. Word. I was going to change it to round, brown, and greasy, but my old lady wouldn't, wouldn't allow that. So. <laughs> That's unreal. Love it. Oh, man. Well, Wacy, thank you so much for taking the time to, to come on here. And, uh, you know, usually when we get people on here, one of the first questions we ask is, is just kind of how you got your start in hockey. And you grew up in Lethbridge, mm-hmm. Alberta, um, right around that area. And, uh, you know, what was it uh, that got you passionate? What, what was it that got you started in the sport? Uh, well, I kind of grew up probably a little bit different. Most, I think a lot of our listeners aren't familiar with uh, my background and my heritage. I'm First Nations, so if you're in the States, it'd be Native American. And I grew up on what would be reservation in the States as a reserve in Canada. And basically, they're, we, had, we had the largest reserve in Canada, and we had one hockey rink. I had my old, all my older cousins were playing hockey. We, we play hockey in the summer or in the winter and then rodeo in the summertime. So, I mean, I started skating at two and a half and playing organized hockey at three. And it wasn't something that I was looking to be like an NHL star, but by five or six, I mean, I just, I love the game and then eventually grew. So I got my start there and on my reserve. And then I moved off of uh, my reserve when I was about 12 to actually pursue my dream of uh, playing competitive hockey. And then I went from Lethbridge to Airdrie and then eventually into the Western Hockey League. So were you drafted in the WHL? Yeah, uh, I actually played for uh, one of the, I guess, I don't know how it is now, it's like 20 years ago, but uh, the Airdrie Extreme Program is just located probably just outside of Calgary. Uh, we were probably the best Bantam team in Western Canada. Uh, we were, I was probably about December-ish. You, I finally realized that it was my draft year. I didn't know what the WHL draft was, but all my teammates were saying that I like, was a potential pick. And I ended up getting picked uh, in the third round by Saskatoon Blades. Um, I, I knew of the WHL, obviously, just growing up like uh, in Lethbridge, the Lethbridge Hurricanes, the WHL team there was basically like our NHL. So I was excited. I was pumped. And 
I thought I was able to play the next year, but you have to wait a couple of years. So my first camp, I got cut and I thought I actually got cut by the team and didn't realize I couldn't play for a couple of years. Oh my God. That's <laughs> too funny. Was it because you were wearing, Hey, was it because you were wearing white skates though? Cause Wacey used to wear white skates. Tell that's a fashion I statement. I didn't actually, I didn't have white skates then. My, uh, my parents would have killed me. And then I scored a couple goals and got the, got the okay by the GM to wear white skates. And to my a to my, when I sent those skates, the, the specs to Providence, they're supposed to be all black and they showed up all white and dub said, I, I had to wear them. So that oh wasn't my, my fault. That was Dub's <laughs> fault for white skates. Well, we see no one believes that. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Well, the WHL is, is, you know, one of the top junior leagues in the world and, and you pay, played, you know, parts of five seasons in the WHL. Um, what was your experience like? And I got a couple questions for that. First of all, what was it like to play in Saskatoon? I feel like Saskatoon is like the, the typical, like stereotypical Canadian uh, na- name of a city that all Americans use to describe Canada. <laughs> But, so if you oh, can, yeah. um, like t- tell our listeners a little bit about what it was like playing in Saskatoon and, and then wanted to ask you also about uh, your time in Vancouver as well after that. Yeah. I mean, my, I mean, from the get go, I had a great time. Um, my 16 year old year, I ended up having like close to 50 points. I scored over 20 goals and I was, uh, actually the flag bearer at the Canada winter games for team Alberta. And we won gold there, so I had a good tournament. I got selected to play for the under-18 World or uh, World Cup team, which is Team Canada, the Ivan Olinka now. But my time in, in Saskatoon, it, it was very meaningful. My, my billets were awesome. The city's awesome. It's very, I mean, there's no professional um, sports in Saskatchewan other than the CFL team. So hockey is number one there. But, I mean, junior hockey in the West, in, in Saskatchewan, is it flows through everybody's blood and veins. So... Uh, we were, we had some good teams and then I was honored, uh, my 19 year year, I selected captain. So I was the second, like a, like first nations, uh, player to be selected captain in the Western hockey league. Um, and there is a big wow. Aboriginal base and, and first nations, uh, reserves around Saskatoon. And for me to represent not only myself, but, uh, the city of Saskatoon and the blades and obviously the people around there that, um, hopefully I was a role model to some of those kids. And I, to this day, I still talk to people on Twitter. They'll mention, they'll, they'll throw me a, uh, a follow or they'll mention me and they'll say that they remember my days in Saskatoon. So that was one of the biggest things for me. That's awesome. And, uh, while you were there, you actually won the WHL humanitarian of the year. So talk to us a little bit about that and, and, you know, how much of your experience was, you know, community involved and, and how important that was to you. Yeah, I was about my 17, 18 year where I graduated. So either you go to school or do uh, you go for breakfast club. For anybody that knows breakfast club, it's basically you don't have breakfast at the rink. You just come in and check in and make sure you're not sleeping all day. <laughs> um, I actually wanted to, I wanted to, I reached out to the people that worked in the marketing staff that I wanted to get out into the community, specifically the Aboriginal and the community around Saskatoon. So we did some stuff in the inner city. Um, then where there was, there are a lot of reserves outside of Saskatoon. So I wanted to reach those. I mean, there were within driving distance. So I'd be back in time for, for practice. So then we actually had an idea, but we'd get all the, I guess would be the Saskatoon tribal council, all those reserves outside in the inner city that if the kids, we had a program that if they had perfect attendance, they, I mean, they didn't have to have great grades, but they had to be trying. And obviously they, uh, they had a good attitude in school that we would bring them in. There'd be 30 kids from 
selected from different schools that they would come in once a month. We'd have a pizza party. They'd skate with the team. And then we'd bring in, uh, I remember one time we had the K9 unit. We had the firefighters propelling down. They got to do that. So, and then they'd come to one of our games and they got to sit in the suite. So that was one of the, one of the things that we had for my program. And I just go and I bring some of the players to come play, uh, whether it was street hockey or whatever with the school, but just to be showing our face that, Hey, that we're, we're, although we are hockey players and we're in the newspaper, but we're, we're community members and we're trying to give back and be good role models, especially to, for me, like it's in my heart as the Aboriginal community. That's so cool. AC and, and any, any parent of a junior player or coach or any junior players that we have listening to this, like, Take, take what Wacy's talking here and get out into the community for so many different reasons. I mean, one reason, like to help other people, like Wacy was going to show that he's a role model in the Aboriginal community. That's unbelievable. Those kids probably looked up to him so hardcore. I know that Tolf and I both did this kind of thing. We played in juniors as well. And we would go, me and actually Brandon Rado and Jeff Lurg, who we've had on this podcast, we would go and um, to schools and read to the kids and then play street hockey with them. And a, the three of us had a ball doing it. Like we always made it fun. The kids had a good time, but we got out there. We were role models. The kids would come to the game and be so excited that they knew players. It's another way to generate new fans too, and get more people excited in the game. It's just a really cool thing that, that the guys who aren't in high school can do in juniors. And I urge you to ask to get out there and do it. Like put yourself out there, get yourself comfortable speaking and doing things like that. Cause you never know what kind of thing that could lead to. Yeah, especially well in the first age community where I'm from, we have such a, I mean, it's it's kind of it's sad to say, but it, it's out there that we, where my reserve, we have a huge opioid epidemic right now, and there's a suicide rate is way above normal, and like the addictions rate is is crazy. So I think just for any kid that they see something, say, you know what, Wacy was five nine. He grew up in the same spot where I was, but he, 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 he worked hard, obviously. And then he, he, I mean, he didn't make the NHL, but if they see that, like, look, I get to travel the world. I've met amazing people. I got to, got to do things. I'm still playing the game. I love that. If he can do that, that I can, you know? So that's, that's basically all I've ever wanted is for these kids to see that you don't have to be the best, but as long as you work hard, you're going to give yourself a shot. And from there, who, who knows what the door, what doors will open for you. Yeah, it's so true, Wace. And, and do you think that maybe because you got into sports, specifically hockey, at such a young age, that maybe that kept you kind of on a straight and narrow path and kept you dedicated and kept you away from kind of, uh, you know, the drugs or the drinking and things like that? Do you think that played a role in that? Yeah, it was a major role. Obviously, my parents, they're they're awesome people. If you ever met them, they're, you've met my mom. She's amazing. She's a high school principal. My dad. What's up, mama? I mean, he works. Yeah. I don't think she'll be listening, but you've met my mom and they, they're, they're, they're people that are, that are driven people. But I think they made sure that I was um, level headed and that I worked hard. And if I, that wasn't just going to be given, given anything that I had to work for it. So, but I think sports is a huge, a huge thing for, for young kids that it allows them to get a distraction away from the real world. You know, when you're, even if you're playing soccer or baseball or just to get away that you don't have to worry about being bullied or what's going on at home or at school that you just get to be yourself and you get to have fun. And I think that's the biggest thing for any, any of these, uh, the youth coming up is that especially with the, with media today and like the one bad thing is only a click away on your phone. So if you can put your phone or tablet away that you can go play hockey, play soccer, play basketball, 
it just allows you to be a kid again. You know, you don't have to worry about that. And that was the, the biggest thing for me is just is be, seeing that. And obviously all my friends are playing hockey. So that made it a lot easier. Very yeah, cool. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, I had a question for you because yeah, I feel like a lot of what we hear kind of in the media about, you know, the Aboriginal and the Native American cultures right now kind of goes along with what you were talking about in terms of, you know, the negative effects of the opioid crisis and, and, and alcohol and, and things like that. But um, I, I'm actually fascinated with that kind of culture, the positive aspects of the culture, because I, I do a lot of like reading and research about like leadership and how to build community and stuff like that. And, and I feel like the Aboriginal culture and the Native American culture, I mean, it's unbelievable how, how you guys do that. So I wanted to ask you, like, what are some things from your culture that has kind of stuck with you as, as you've gone through your hockey journey, like some values or, you know, certain norms that, that kind of you and your family have done, you know, f- throughout the tradition of your, your family history? Uh, well, so first off, I think that's, that's pretty cool that you, you, obviously think of our people like that. I mean, we're a very resilient group. I mean, we put from time of uh, the settlers landed here, we've been through, put through some stuff that, I mean, not many people can, I guess, civilization can get through and we're still here and we're still trying every day just to survive, you know? So I think that is a, a cool thing. And number one, my, like, I mean, I grew up on reserve. I didn't think it was anything like it wasn't any, anything abnormal that, obviously until I moved into a white school, but for me, like, uh, my grandparents, I'll just say, be proud of who you are, where you come from. We still, uh, I go home on our reserve. We have the, we celebrate the winter solstice and the summer solstice. So that basically is that it's just, uh, giving thanks to our land. Uh, we have a a big meals, we have big, uh, like a big celebration. Obviously there's powwows. If you guys ever know, been there where like there's the drums and all the regalia and we do the certain dances and it's basically just honoring earth, you know, because, you don't, as soon as you die, you go back into the earth and you're, you, it's just the cycle, you know? So for me, I anywhere I go, I just uh, lay down some tobacco and that's just basically giving thanks to allowing me. So when I went to Japan or I went to Norway, even down here in Florida, I give, I just put some tobacco in the earth and you say, thank you for allowing me to, to obviously visit the land. And for myself, it, it's, it's nothing super spiritual. It's just saying thanks. And that's what that's for me, my grandparents and my parents are, we've done. I mean, I, I went to school in a Catholic school. So, I mean, I still believe that our beliefs are probably the exact same, but I just go about praying different way, you know? So I'm not shunning anything or doing anything different that anybody be, it's just the way that I, I give thanks basically. I love that way. You see, man, that's so cool. I consider myself kind of like a one eighth hippie. I think love the earth and stuff like that. I, I think that's awesome. Except, uh, kids listening, don't chew tobacco. It is not cool. Um, if you want to be more like me, lay down a protein shake into the ground and say, thanks. Yeah, there you go. Oh man. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, that's, that's really cool. And, and, and the, the native American Aboriginal culture, I mean, I, I encourage people to, to read about it. One of the most influential books that I've read, uh, is called tribe by, uh, I feel like it's Sebastian Junger or something like that, but it's called tribe. And it just, uh, it, it just kind of goes to show you how tight knit and, and how proud, um, the culture is. And I think that's really, really cool. Um, but, but moving on, wanted to ask you too, you know, we talked a little bit about 
junior hockey. Um, and, and you got a chance and this is, you know, pretty much everybody can, every uh, Canadian kid's dream is, is to win a Memorial cup. Uh, and you got to win a Memorial cup in 2007 with the Vancouver giants. So wanted to ask you, what was that? That must've been just unreal winning a mem cup and, and just take us through a little bit of that, maybe that playoff run and, and that experience. Yeah, well, I have to start with the whole year. The beginning, it was just a whirlwind season for me. It was kind of my, like full of ups and downs. I started the year, I signed my professional contract with the Bruins, my entry-level deal, and I started in Providence. I uh, wasn't playing at all. I remember I got healthy scratch like 12 times in a row, and I was like, what's going on? And I just kind of bit my lip. I mean, I'm 20 years old, so I got to earn my spot. And um, eventually I got a couple games in, and by about the January-ish, I think my, my agent realized that I was going to get sent down to the East Coast. So I knew that uh, one of the directors or one of the amateur scouts was from the Vancouver area, and my agent knew him. So they kind of organized something that if I didn't want to go down to the East Coast, that I'd be allowed to, my, my rights from Saskatoon to give me trade to Vancouver, who at the time was host the Memorial Cup. So it took a couple of days, and then they spoke with uh, the Boston Brass, and they said that it was, yeah, it's fine that if I went down. Uh, obviously they just wanted me to play and get some games and meaningful games and what more meaningful, especially at junior hockey, the Memorial cup. So, uh, that, that I got traded. And then within 48 hours, I was playing in the American league to the back in the Western hockey League with the Vancouver giants. And if you guys ever want to, I have stories of, uh, the giants that I probably can't say on the, on the air, but the, I mean, that team was intense. <laughs> they pra- the teams talk about, they want to practice harder than they play games in that team. They had Milan Lucic, we had our captain here is Garrett Hunt, uh, J.D. Watt, Cody France, and those guys, I mean, they, they challenge each other. There's almost a fight every practice, but then you get into games and they have each other's backs. And I, I was just lucky enough to, that I was, I, I played hard nosed and I was, I was, I was, I had some skill, but I also played the other side of the puck. So I fit in well. Toph, I got to tell you, Wacy rabbit, like Wacy, you said you're five, nine. Is that correct? Yeah. Wacy plays. Unreal. Wacy always tries to get free training programs for me also, by the way, Tof, every <laughs> summer. But anyways, um, Wacy at five, nine, that, this guy plays like he's like six, three. I've never, and Tof, you would love him for this. I've never seen a better shot blocker in my entire career at any level. Oh yeah. Anywhere I played, this guy friggin' eats pucks. I mean, he eats pucks. And it's funny that he just talked about, like, battling that hard in practice. And, you know, you believe in that, and so do I. Wacy and I are playing in Japan and literally got, got in a fight in practice <laughs> against each other. There's only three imports on the team, and we're doing a <laughs> one-on-one battle drill. And we just look at each other. He slashed me. I slashed him. I was probably being an idiot out there. And we just shed our mitts and start chucking them. If you could have seen the Japanese guys' faces, they were like <laughs> – why are our teammates fighting each other? And, you know, Wacy and I, like, it probably took about 10 minutes to cool down after. And then we totally hugged it out, laughed about it, obviously became better friends. But the next drill, Wace, remember the next drill? Who was I going against? Like, oh. Icky? He wouldn't come yeah, near well, me after we got in that fight. <laughs> Unbelievable. Was, but, but Wace, love it. I'll get back to the, the Giants thing. So, obviously, I uh, we won there. And, but we went through a great playoff round. We didn't actually win the WHL championship. We uh, played the Medicine Hat Tigers, and they, they had Chris Russell, Darren Helm, Ennis, like who's who of the NHL 
probably about five years ago now, but they, uh, they were a great team. We lost game seven, triple overtime oh, in the, goo. in the final. Of the w. It, was, it was, it was heartbreaking. I remember I hit the crossbar in the first overtime and then I took a probably, I had my scuba tank on. So I had like a minute and a half shift. And then I remember I changed and it was just one of those goals that are just like anybody says, just throw the puck at the net. And in overtime, anything could happen. It was one of those that just kind of guy was cutting across the blue, wasn't even looking, just threw it on net and it hit like a piece of the chunk of the ice and it went in. I'm watching it and there goes my WHL career and the, my WHL championship that I was chasing. It just blew away in the dust in that moment. But lucky for us, we didn't go through the front door. We went to the screen door. We were allowed to, we got into the championship and we were allowed to host. So we were there and there were some good teams. There's Plymouth, there's like James Neal, uh, Lewiston from Quebec, they had uh, Bernier and David Perron. I think you guys be familiar with St. Louis guys. Um, and then us and Medicine Hat, and we ended up playing Medicine Hat in the final again. We beat them 3-1, and Vancouver is a – if you guys ever go to Vancouver, make sure you guys go there during uh, any type of sports event. You see in the Canucks, they flip cars. They didn't do that for us because we won, but the fans are nuts. <laughs> we got to play in the old Canucks Coliseum, the P&E, and we had 20,000 fans, like, lifting that cup and my parents were there. My family was there. My reserve was, I was getting well wishes from reserves and like first nations people all across Canada. So I made them proud and we were on Sportsnet, So every single person was watching uh, hockey that, that afternoon on that Saturday. So it was, it was exciting. And, and we had our 10 year anniversary a couple of years ago. And if you win with the team, you guys become brothers forever. And like, it was like, we never skipped a beat. And we saw each other at the golf turn. It was, it was awesome. So just to reminisce and obviously thinking back now, you get those different memories and I'm glad you guys, I got to share that with you guys right now. How, how many guys that are now in the NHL from that team? Cause I know Lucic, maybe a couple others. Did those guys make it back for the reunion or no? Yeah, I think there was only two or three that didn't make it. Um, obviously the, some of them had the, obviously their everyday, they got their family and kids going so they couldn't get away, but everybody was there. I mean, we probably partied a little too hard and we <laughs> had his nice big house there and probably had a couple of cleaning up some beer bottles in the, in the pool from the boys, but it was fun. And it was just good to see those, those guys again. I mean, the, some guys that were first round picks got to play some games in the NHL. Some of them represented our country. And obviously uh, I think the big name that everyone knows would be Milan Lucic. That, I mean, he's had a hell of a career, won a Stanley cup and, now he's getting eaten alive by the Edmonton Oilers media. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just like so cool that you guys won 10 years ago and almost everyone from the team comes back to celebrate. Like that's hockey. What other sport is everyone coming back to be there for it? You know, like I just, I absolutely love that. I think that is so cool, man. Like that is, that's unbelievable. And let's, let's go from that to, uh, to being drafted. I know you got drafted during this time and you kind of talked about going in the AHL. Um, but how was it being drafted and, and what did that mean to your, your reservation and your people and, and everything? Like, how was that experience? Cause obviously Tolf and I were not drafted. Yeah, I was, uh, my draft year was kind of weird because it was after the lockout. There was the lockout season, so that was my draft year, and we didn't know if there was going to be a draft. So we got the NHL Combine, usually it's in May, and then usually the, the draft is early July or end of June. But our, our draft, I think, was, I want to say, begin, end of July, beginning of August. So, I mean, the, you didn't get to go to it unless you were a, a potential first-round pick, but usually they'll allow everybody to go if, if it was an actual draft. So it was kind of weird, and it was in Ottawa. So I'm sitting around, and 
the, the computer and I'm updating it. And my, my little cousin's there with me. Uh, my family's around and first round goes by second round goes by third round goes by. And, and like my mom, you can tell my mom is starting to panic. And my dad's starting to panic. He's like, well, what if you don't get drafted? And they're just kind of, they didn't want to have the talk that, Hey, it's okay if you don't get drafted. But then we're sitting around in the fifth round and then halfway during the fifth, we're not, we're in the, we're not in the computer room anymore. And I'm kind of like realizing, oh, oh, here we go. Like, I'm not going to get drafted. And I went to the combine, had a great year. And then my cousin comes out and he just like is staring at us. And he like, is basically in tears. And he's probably like 15 at the time. He's like, hey, you're going to the Boston Bruins. And then, I mean, at that point, I mean, growing up for me, the Boston Bruins, the big bad Bruins, Bobby Orr, Cam Neely, the original six, that was it was so cool. And my whole family got excited. And then there was a, there's a powwow actually on my, uh, on my reserve that I wasn't able to go to 10 that weekend, but they, once the news came out, they, they announced that on the intercom, there's probably over 2000 people there and all the drums and everyone was clapping. They did like a moment, like an honor. And then for a minute, they, they were banging the drums apparently. And just, I was the first guy, first Blackfoot player to get drafted into the NHL. So for me, if for, for me, it was more of a moment for my parents because all the sacrifice they did for me and they gave up so that they, that I could play. I mean, we didn't come from money. Um, my mom was uh, working her, she was working and then going to school at the same time. And the same, and then my dad was back and forth. He was uh, working at Edmonton and Calgary back and forth. So he wasn't we were, They would be trying to figure it out, trying to get me to hockey and play as high level. And I, now I'm realizing, see how crazy and how expensive it was in the, now that I'm older, you, you see how much your parents sacrifice. So for me at that moment was for my parents, you know, is that, Hey, look like we did it. You know, we, we got drafted. Obviously we're not playing in the NHL, but we got to an opportunity where not many people say they can get to. And for, for us, it was just kind of an exhale that, Hey, this is a moment we should be proud of. And this is a moment we're always going to remember. That's waste. That is, I got chills, man. All the kids listening, turn to your mom and dad right now give them a hug and a kiss, tell them you love them and say thank you. Cause you have no idea how much hockey moms and dads sacrifice. And I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about time, energy, nerves, everything. Turn to them right now and give them a kiss. <laughs> Wait, so you should have seen like, as you were telling your story, I kind of looked cause we're on Skype right now. I'm kind of looking at my screen and I see Jeff and he's kind of got this like far away smile look, just like totally just enamored with your story. And then I looked at myself too, and I had the exact same face on. So you're like, both of us are sitting here listening to you like, wow, man, this guy's unreal. His family's unreal. So, uh, that's, that's, oh my gosh, that's so cool. I got chills too, but, um, you, you got drafted by, by Boston and then, uh, you spent some time in Providence and, and as we said before the call, we have some uh, some mutual teammates that we've played with, and uh, one of them wanted me to ask you, and you're probably going to know which one, um, who who your two toughest line mates were when you played in Providence. Oh well, I mean, I know who you're talking to, so I'll get, I'll say three because he's not one of the top two. <laughs> so I'm going to give an honorable mention to Iron Byron Bits. <laughs> And then the other two were uh, Jeremy Reach, who was my linemate. Um, he was our captain. He was probably one of the funniest guys I've ever met. And then Steve McIntyre. I don't know if you guys know who that guy is. I played with him. He was, yeah. So, well, Steve Mack. And then I don't know if Tolf, like one of the toughest guys in the NHL for a while, those yeah. two guys. And you also got to remember that. So I'm mentioning my linemates. So those guys were bottom six. So I was a bottom six guy. So I wasn't playing exactly with the most skilled because Jeff came in and took my spot and, there was my opportunity. So thanks Jeff for having me on your podcast and ruining my shot at the NHL. 
I'm just kidding. So I literally came out of college with like, I think there was 14, there's 15 games left. Cause I sat out the first game and then I played all the rest and I legit like took Wacy's spot for like the first couple games. And he would not talk to me in the locker room. <laughs> I thought he was so mad at me. And like, then I, then like after a week we talked and literally I hung out with him every day. We, we became best friends. We'd go mall walk together after practice, go out to dinners, go to movies. We instantly became besties, but I legit took his spot for like the first few weeks and he was not happy. That's so well, he funny. introduced me to entourage and oh. from there on, he became my best friend. So <laughs> that's good. The, yeah. Anyways. So, so those two guys are my toughest guys. And obviously iron, he's big. Iron Byron bits. He's probably on his combine right now in middle of nowhere, Saskatchewan, listening to this. So. Absolutely, he's an accountant too now, dude. He's not. He's not just on the farms. He's a, he's managing people's money, if you can believe that. Oh yeah, he's a Cornell grad. Him and Andy Bernard, you know. <laughs> I, know. <laughs> I got a great story for you. So you actually might have even been there, both you guys. But I remember. So Bitsy was drafted by the Bruins too, and uh, it, like obviously you guys know him well. And like his biggest thing when he was going to development camps during the summer was like he wanted to win the bench test. Like he could honestly care less like how well he played on the ice or any other tests like vert or anything. Like he just wanted to win the bench. So I remember he went to camp and then kind of came back and I remember talking to him and just like the first thing I said was like, Hey Bitsy, man, how was camp? Cause I've never been to an NHL camp or anything like that. And Bitsy, how was, how was development camp? First thing he says to me, I won the bench. <laughs> so that was like his shining <laughs> moment. I feel like of, uh, of that and fighting Donald Brazier in one of his first games up in Boston were like his shining professional hockey moments. So I'm sure that doesn't, uh, doesn't surprise you in the least, huh? No, not even a little bit with that guy. I mean, so we call him Iron Byron. Hey. Well, I called him Iron Byron. <laughs> Wait, so I want to, I want to ask you a question because you alluded to it earlier. You know, you got drafted fifth round by Boston. You won a Memorial cup championship in the WHL sick Bantam player. You were probably more of a skill guy in the dub and, and not just like just only a skill guy. You kind of did it all, but then you get to the American League, and you kind of probably had to change roles. How did you feel about that? How did you accept it? How did you did you accept it right away? Were you upset? Like, how did that kind of transformation happen to you? Kind of in like a a second, third line guy, penalty kill specialist. Like, how did you take that and in stride? And 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 what do you think about it? Well, for me, I wasn't I wasn't a very highly touted prospect. So fifth round, I kind of knew what what my role was going to be, but obviously coming from five years of playing only on the offensive side of the puck and being counted on that side from junior, you go into pro and you expect that you're going to do the same thing and being healthy, scratch those 12 games in a row. Like, I mean, I don't know if I wasn't playing well enough or I wasn't doing what they wanted, but there, for me, I just had to realize that you're playing professional hockey and this is a job. So you got to do whatever it takes to, to basically stay at that level and I remember having the meeting at the end of the year with the Bruins they said hey you're 5'9 you look at the NHL right now all the guys at the time was the big guys you know and I was traded by the guy that drafted or that I was drafted by the guy that traded Joe Thornton and then Shirelli came in that year and he loved the big guys and I exactly wasn't fitting his mold so I, I had to do whatever it took for me to to, to stay up in the American League and hopefully get more eyes on me to get a chance in the NHL. So one was my face-offs. I mean, I, they, if I could play, if I, if I took, if I was good at face-offs, I was going to be put in every single role, whether it was power play, 
that last minute at, at the end of a game, if you're up by one or if you're losing by one, that do they want to take that? They want someone that can take that, that face off. And two was playing on the other side of the puck. So I had to say, I mean, I, um, Scott Gordon and, um, Rob Murray were my coaches and I sat down and I, they put me through video every single day of not only just being on that side of the puck, but stick position, how your feet are being between the puck and the net and obviously anticipating because I wasn't a big guy and I wasn't out muscling anybody. If you put yourself in your stick in a good position where a, you're making sure that they can't see the net or their, their eyes aren't facing towards the middle of the ice, that there's your opportunity to, to pounce on them and be their stick position. It's puck stick to puck. And obviously I don't have the longest reach. So being agile and quick and finishing players like that. And the biggest thing for me was the anticipation. And I obviously got, I learned how to penalty kill and I love blocking shots. I love eating them, but just knowing that the closer you are, if you're seeing a one-timer, you're not going to stand where you are is actually challenging it and going out towards it because it's the velocity of the, of the slap shot and the one-timer. That's what hurts. So if you're closer, it doesn't allow the puck to get that velocity. So, I mean, you're eating a puck at 80 miles an hour instead of when it reaches its highest velocity at a hundred that you, you're not going to get injured, you know? So just little stuff like that. And obviously learning off of the players that were older than me in the American league that, I mean, it's a job, you know, the, the details are the most important things. Obviously the guys that score 50 goals, they just got to hit that switch where the pucks on their stick, off their stick in the back of the net, but I didn't have that switch. So I had to find something and that was my niche. And I was lucky enough to play five years, five years in the American league. And I went on to pro and took that with me when I went over to Europe. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I, I, blocking shots is like one of my favorite things to talk about. So the fact that you just got in depth on it, I, I absolutely love it. <laughs> and yeah. uh, how like you've been playing pro for a long time. Like how how have you, years? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, over three hundred AHL games. Uh, you've played pro in over seven different countries. You know, how have you kind of seen at least on the North American side because you played last year in, in Jacksonville. You know, how have you seen the North American side of the game change when it comes to you know how people kind of talk about and teach blocking shots? I think for one, I mean, you got to have heart because it's not easy stepping in front of a slap shot or any type of wrist shot. So you got to have heart and you got to realize that, I mean, you are equipment so protected now that the chance of you getting hurt majorly isn't going to be that. The percentage of that isn't very high, but number two is, I mean, you just got to be, it takes work. I mean, when I was in with the giants, we were, they were blocking shots and they're moving across the line, but they've like our defense when we're actually shooting like rubber pucks, you know? So it's, it's something you work on. You don't just one day saying, okay, I'm going to be a shot blocker. It's something you work on and just getting down. You got to be, for me, like when the defense will walk across the blue line, I stick my, my right leg out and I'd be pushing off with my left foot. So that is almost like a goalie coming across the keys. It may look funny or stupid, but I mean, a, it was hard for the defenseman to, especially if you block that and you're the last defenseman back and this, the other way I got a breakaway, you know? So they, it was almost a deterrent so that they wouldn't shoot it and they'd be shooting around me. And if they shot around me, then that was just as good as blocking a shot because the puck isn't going towards the net. But now you see like with the high tip on the power plays, it's so hard now that players are shooting around you with the high tip and it's still going towards the net. But I mean, as long as that it's not going through me or it's not a one T where it's going from one side of the the ring to the other. And I get an opportunity to step in front of it or get a deflection that our goalie, it, it helps our goalie get a save, or at least it goes over the net. I love that. I love that. Well, you talk about blocking shots, but another thing that you talked about too, um, was face-offs 
and being really good at faceoffs. I, I don't think kids understand how much more ice time you can get if you're a center and you're really, really good at faceoffs because then you have the trust of the coaches to put you out there in, in every different situation. So, you know, for all the kids listening, you know, take take Wasey's story to, to heart because he was able to get a lot more ice time and put out in different situations because of his faceoff ability. And actually, Evan Barlow, another teammate of mine and yours, um, said that you were one of the best that, that he's ever seen. So, you know, for the kids out there, what are some of the things that you talk about or what are some of the things that like you think about in terms of face-offs in, in uh, you know, in your routine and when you go to take them? Yeah, well, number one, like I'm small. So my center of uh, balance and gravity is, is, is lower toward the ice. So it's, it allows me to, to get a better look at the, where the puck's coming from when it's leaving the hand of the ref. Um, I mean, I want overpowering anybody. I'm just going through sticks or I'm trying to sweep at the whole circle and working on it. Number two is just, it's the purest one-on-one in hockey because everyone's standing still. It's just between you and the other guy. And it's basically, it's determination. I remember I still have marks on my arms from guys just chopping my, my, my wrists or my hands just because like I'd be right down there and I'd be low and I'd be working on that stuff with whether it was my hand eye coordination. I'd be doing stuff with like balls in the summertime and just trying to get my hand eye coordination so that I was trying to get, if, if I have to get into a one-on-one battle or a, a, like a power battle with some of the guys that are in the American league, they're going to overpower me just because they're so much bigger and stronger. So if I can find a way and just finding different ways of using my entire stick, um, they actually, one of the, they don't allow the rule anymore, but I would come across the guys, take a skate, like his feet out or his hands. And I'd use my hand to, I would just get it basically falling. I'd use my hand to knock the puck back. And that was, I think they changed the rule where you're not allowed to do that. And one of the, that was one of my biggest things was doing that. It's just using any part of my body, whether it's my skates, but just getting into like a, if it did get into a 50, 50 power battle, then I would be using that. But if I could just get my stick and my hands and my, my eye, my hand eye coordination going with the puck that, and it took a lot of time. Cause I mean, I was getting eaten alive when I first got into the American league. And then it just took time and working every day after practice in the summertime, like I said, working with different stuff for hand-eye coordination. And then now, like I'm playing wing now, but I'll go in and take a big draw this year in Jacksonville was the beginning of the year. They throw me out there. If it was power play or penalty kill, like I said, or that big draw at the end of the game. So it allowed me to, to play a lot more. And it did take a lot of work now looking back. I mean, it was just something that I wanted to do, but looking back that you have to actually put in the work to do, to be good at face-offs because it, it doesn't just come to you. That's awesome. And, and face-offs are massive. I mean, if you're in the offensive zone on a power play, you're looking at like a 15 second swing. If you win that draw and keep it in the zone or the other team wins it, they get it down. You got to get everybody back. You got to then re get into the zone. So hopefully you can break it in and set up. So, I mean, it's massive, but Wasey, just real quick, like for our listeners who are younger or the parents trying to help their kids get better, when you're going into face-off, what are you looking at? Are you looking at the other guy's stick position? Are you looking at the ref's hand? Like, what, Do you have a checklist that you do? Kind of what's your yeah. – you're, you're going in, what do you do? Well, A, I'm looking at is he a left-handed or right-handed guy? And then you look at where he's where he's positioning his other – either it's usually his defenseman or forward because then you can tell if he's going to try and go forward or backwards with it or which position. So at that point, you can see his bottom hand if it's – over like most that most people do their bottom hand will be pushed over to allow more leverage to kick the puck back. And basically it's just his feet position. Now everyone's lined up, but if you can just go in and even getting inside their heads, you just tell the ref or linesman, can you fix his feet? Even if they don't need to be fixed, 
you're already in his head, you know? So like I said, it's a one-on-one position, but just looking at the way his position is and obviously the hand, if he's a right-handed or left-handed and his bottom hand is the biggest thing. And you'll, you'll eventually learn like I, I've, I had different techniques for left-handed guys and right-handed guys. So that's one of the biggest things. And after that, it's just a matter of me just trying to get the road, the rhythm of the way the, the, the lines in is dropping the puck. So if you can get that, then I think you'll, you'll win most face-offs rather than lose them. But are you looking at his hand, the ref's hand or are you looking at the dot? Oh, I'm staring at the hand. Like, okay. you know, I've, I've talked to a couple of guys this year on our team that they'll be staring just at the dot or the other guy to see what he's doing. But if you can look at the, if you, you should be staring at the, the linesman's hands as soon as you know what you're going to do or what, what the other person can do. You should be staring at it until it actually touches the ice and don't stop looking because you're, that's where your, your hand eye coordination comes in. Cause chat, I mean, chances are you miss the first swing, but the second swing, your eyes throw on the puck that you'll get it knocked back towards the, the way you want it to. And it, it's crazy how many players right now don't actually look at the puck. And that was, a, that was the number one thing that I was taught is you don't stop staring at that puck. So, the, I mean, it'll, your body will follow the head and, as long as your head's looking at the puck, the body will do whatever it takes. Whether it's a, you get a, a swat at it or your feet, your feet, you're allowed to protect it. But it'll from there, it's basically don't don't keep your eye off the puck. That's yeah, that's awesome. Well, I, I want I want to say something here too because I was really really fortunate. Um, my freshman year at Cornell was actually the first lockout year in what I think it was 2005. And uh, Joe Newendike, who's like legit one of the top faceoff guys ever in the NHL, he's an alum and, and actually lives in Ithaca during the summer. So he came out and skated with us until they canceled the season. And uh, so he would actually work with us on faceoffs. And t- like typically, again, for the kids out there, like you go in, you're like, oh, you know, I can probably win maybe like, you know, two out of five or maybe three or four out of 10 against him. But like legitimately, I went 10 draws in a row against him and won zero. Like that's how much of a skill faceoffs is. Like it's a legit skill that you can get a lot better at too by working on it. And uh, one of the things that he told us when it came to it was like having like a pre-draw routine. So like, you know, the, the, the five seconds before you go in to, to take the draw, um, like have a routine, whether it's like, Hey, talking to your defenseman, Hey, I'm going to you, or maybe you tap your shin pad, or maybe, you you know, you look at the dot and then you look at the ref's puck, whatever it may be, just have like a little bit of a routine that gets you kind of like mentally ready for the draw. Um, so that was something that I, I always did and I felt worked. But one of the questions I wanted to ask for, I feel like we're talking about this a lot, but I think this is something that's really relevant. Like, what do you do when some, <clears throat> excuse me, what do you do? when somebody has your number so you've been going against a guy like all game or you're playing pro hockey and you play against a team you know 10 times during a year and and your lines are always matched up so you're going against them all game like what do you do mentally or what do you do with your draws like if you feel like somebody has your number and and uh, it's tough to beat them um well i'll go back to like what i was saying before i was looking before i come into the dot i'm looking at who i'm going against and if this, I remember uh, Jason Kroc, he was with the Chicago Wolves and he was, had a great American League career over point, whatever, but he was amazing at draws. And I just couldn't figure because he wouldn't get into a battle. He would just put his, he put a stick down and he'd just sw- swing at it. And I couldn't figure it out. This is when I was playing in Milwaukee. So I started, like I said, I started messing with him through the, through the linesman. I'd say, can you line up his feet? And then he would get flossy. He said, let's beat our lineup. And as soon as you get that, there's, that's the battle. I mean, that's, you're already in his head. And from there, I'd, I'd start after the second or third draw, I'd move his feet so that 
and then we, we kind of get into a drawing match. But as soon as that, it was just almost like a mental warfare. It was just trying to get in his head. So we wouldn't be thinking about the draw, but I mean, I wouldn't talk to him. I just, I'd go use the linesman. So just like little tactics like that, or I'd give him a little hook, but then if one, I mean, it's probably really bad to say this, but at certain points you just come across his wrists on top or try and break his stick so that he would know that, well, do I really want to sacrifice my hands or my, my wrist right now? If it's a game in January and playoffs, I still got three games left if I'm in playoffs, but just getting inside their head, that was for me was the biggest thing. Cause I'm not going to overpower guys. And like I said, Crogger was one of the best centermen I've ever played, ever played against. So just to get that mental edge, or, I mean, I would try and, I would try and just shoot the puck the other way, you know, so you get the momentum if he's with, if he, cause he was right-handed. So if he was on a strong side, he'd be going to his back and I'd go against it. So it'd be my forehand against his backhand. And at least I would tell my winger, say, Hey, the, if we win it, the puck's going in that direction. So just be aware of that instead of the trying to win it back towards you every time. So at least I could get that. And if I was losing it, we're at least going in the same, the same direction as the puck was. So if I, sometimes I just lose on purpose and have my winger jump by and so he could get the puck rather than we're standing around waiting for the 50-50 puck and then it goes back to their defense when they, they clear it, you know. So at least we were all in that momentum going towards where the puck was going. That's great. That's great. That's another thing Newey actually told us was like the draws won before the pucks even dropped. You know, like it's such a – like you talked about, it's a mental battle. So if you go into the draw and you're like, crap, like I can't beat this guy, you're probably not. <laughs> um, yeah. But- let me let me add this too, boys, because you know you were both Topher. You a center? You were a center, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, you guys are both centers, and I'm I'm coming from the wingers' perspective, and I didn't learn this until juniors, but it was so massively important as a winger on a faceoff. The first thing you got to do is take a step towards the towards the dot. And then also like kind of box out the winger next to you on the opposing team. Like you got to get a body position and B stick position. You got to engage that guy. So a, if there's a 50, 50 puck battle, you can get in there first. Or like you just said, if your centerman loses a draw, now you're gone on the four check. So it's, it's massive being a winger and engaging your check getting it to a place where now you can hit the puck back to your D man or skate forward with it or go on the four check. Like you need to be every single face off. This is what my coach and junior said. And I took it with me my entire career on my way, gliding to the face off in my head for every single face off from 17 years old on. I said, what am I doing if I win it? And what am I doing with when I, if we lose it? And then I know right away. So it's a refresher every time I'm going to the draw and it depends on what team you're on, what system you're running. You know, sometimes the, the wall guys for checking, sometimes you're in the middle. And if you lose, you got to sprint to the other side to close off the far side. If you win it, maybe you're running a face off play in the offensive zone. It is massively important at the higher levels to know what you're doing on the face off and then execute it. Yeah. Just to add on to that, I played left wing for the first time in how many years this year. And I, I didn't realize how important the wingers were. So that's just adding to it. So, I mean, either if, if my, if my centerman was having a problem, I would say, Hey, if I can't come in, just make it a 50, 50 battle, you know, then I'm going to come in and we're going to hit it out together. And it's so important for like, you got to work as a five man unit, especially if your wingers are so important. So I'm just adding on to that, that if you can just get into a 50, 50 battle and your wingers can come and help, then that's, I mean, you're doing it as a team together, you know? So at least you guys are all, and I didn't realize how important that was until this year. So that, yeah, I'm totally on Jeff's side for that. Yeah. Tag team that face off. 
<laughs> hey, hey, Wacy. Be, before we, uh, be, one of the things I got to ask you before we kind of end this, um, shit, we can talk to you all day about all this stuff. This is awesome. But um, from the guys that that I know that know you and have played with you, they call you probably one of the funniest people they've ever met. And uh, one of the things that they talk about is you're the team scare guy, and uh, <laughs> and that's what like your kind of like go to thing. So like, if you can, just talk to our listeners a little bit about what the team scare guy means, what you do. And, uh, if you have any really good stories about, uh, you know, some memorable ones that you've had too. Oh, scare guy. Just, I think it happened when I was, it became probably in minor hockey where you, you get to check into the hotel room, you steal a guy's key and you hide in the closet and the whole team isn't, is in on it except for that <laughs> one guy. And if you could scare that one guy, so, and it's funny. And I took that into junior and into to pro. I don't even know. I did it in pro. I just thought it was so funny, but it was for me, it was just allow everyone to kind of get their kind of, Hey, I know we're serious. We're hockey players, but we're also still kids that love to play the game at one point. And for me to scare guy was kind of like just to get everybody's uh, everybody just relaxed and enjoy each other. You can laugh and you can laugh at yourself. And I remember we went into Rochester. I forget our goalie's name, but uh, he was, I stole the key and our captain Nolan Yonkman was rooming with him, and I knew Yonks when he played in Milwaukee. So I was in San Antonio, and it was Brian Foster. Sorry, yeah, he played in New Hampshire. I don't know if you guys know him. He was one of the, the quietest guys, and I tried to talk to him, and he's just a goalie, you know. You know, they're they're pretty. They sometimes a lot of them too. They just <laughs> tend to themselves. So I was, I was for me. I like I always like to have a like a one on one dialogue with every single like a relationship with every single guy on my team, whether it's we talk one day or whatever, but we're best friends, but I like to have a, uh, a relationship with every guy. And he just was really quiet. And I could tell, and I don't know if he didn't like me, but I was going to force myself on him because I wanted him to be, I wanted to be his friend. And the only way I knew was to get, get him scared. So we went into Rochester. It's probably two in the morning. Either I was going to be his, I mean, his most hated list or his best friends list, but the guys were coming in and even the coach was in on it. And he was in the bathroom and he was brushing his teeth. And I was in the actual like shower. So I closed the curtain and I ripped it open and I was like, and I usually say scare guy and then you should have heard his scream. And it was like a little girl scream. And he's like, ah! For, I'm going to say 10 seconds. I, I, thankfully he was young and he was in fit. He was fit enough to not have a heart attack, but he was, he was laughing. And from there, I mean, like we talked and he was, he got him off of his, off of his being so serious. So that was for me just to kind of get everybody involved into joking and, just being a teammate, you know, being a, being a glue guy. And I, I want to add to that too, real quick, Toph, before we get off with Wacy here too. Wacy has obviously made a living. You don't play 13 years professionally in some of the best leagues in the world by not being a good hockey player. But Wacy is by far one of the best locker room guys I've ever met. Like, you know what? He's probably the best. I'd say he's the number one out of any team I played on. And, you know, I, when I signed in Japan, um, you know, they're asking me like, who do you want? Like we need a good person and a good player. And I'm like, look, 
my buddy who I played with in Norway and San Antonio and Providence, he's the best locker room guy in the business. There's no doubt about it. If you want to bring in a good import that will help the team gel and stuff like that, bring in this guy. And they literally brought him in because of how good of a locker room guy he was on top of being a good player. But you know, Japan is a league where there's only three imports. They pay really good money and it's hard to get in there. And they took him because of how good of a teammate he was. And that's what everyone told the team um, about him. So you guys listening, it is so important to be a good teammate. I'm not saying you got to be a scare guy on every team you play on, but <laughs> it's something that endeared all of the players to Wacy in the locker room. Like he said, he always talked to everyone. He made sure he was friends with everyone. It didn't matter what you were doing on the ice. You knew Wacy had your back. The guy's five, nine, he's tough as nails and he doesn't look like it. He looks soft as butter, but he's actually tough as nails. Yikes. But I knew if I knew if something was going down, Wacy was going to have my back. I think he got in a fight with some huge Russian um, when we were playing in Russia, some six, three Russian when we were in Japan, um, you know, cause he had all the boys backs. So when you're on a team, like it is so important to be about the team, about the boys and Wacy's made a very good living as, and that's part of it. So I just want to say that. That's unreal. Well, Wacy, let me, let me ask you this because you're still playing pro hockey and you've, you've played for, for a long time and, and things have kind of changed when it comes to, you know, you hear the older, you know, especially veteran NHL guys talk about kind of like the new wave of guys coming up and just how they're like, you know, they're like so serious and so like committed in a good way, but also just like so individual where a lot of that stuff that you bring to the table kind of almost gets lost in, in uh, the youth that are coming up today because they're so focused on making it and being the best that they can be that they kind of forget about almost like the team aspect. Because if you talk to anybody that's ever won a championship, specifically at the higher levels in pro hockey, you know, if you ask them why they're going to say, well, cause everybody bought in and everybody loved each other, you know? So like, where do you kind of see the pro game at right now, you know, in terms of maybe the younger guys coming up and, and maybe some of that getting lost and, and, uh, just how valuable kind of someone like you is to, to a locker room. Hey, this is my first time back in six years playing in North America and it has changed, you know, obviously being the older guy, but I mean, these kids that are coming in there, no one's showing up out of shape, no one's showing up, not prepared, you know? So like these kids are, are professionals by the time they're 14, they're, they have their skills coaches, they have their dietitians, they have their, their workout guys. So they're prepared. And I mean, if I had that when I was 14, things would have been a different, I mean, I still worked out, whatever, but now these guys are prepared. And when they come in, they, they know it's about a job. So you could tell, and you, and then it's such a long season, especially in North America, there's 80 plus games preseason, your, the, the training camp, the road trips that hey, like they, you could tell, like it was wearing on some of these kids. Like there was the boys of their first year or their fifth year that, and I tell them, Hey man, like you're not going to be the best at every single game, but like I made sure some of the kids that were having a tough time, they would come play two touch before games. So it would get them away from being inside their head because maybe they had a, a bad shift the, the night before or they hadn't scored in six games. I said, Hey, you need to play two touch because it's going to allow you to have fun. You're going to smile and you're going to go in full of energy when you're going to put your gear on, because that's, I felt like that's what you need. And for me, like I said, I talked to all like being a 32 year old guy on the East coast that there was only three of us that were 30 years old. So I went from being the glue guy to now looking to, to that leadership role. And I, I took pride in it. And some of these kids, I mean, whether they took what I taught or how the, how I played them, I had a good year. One, you gotta, if you're going to preach, you gotta make sure you're doing it properly. So I make sure every day I came and I was the first guy at the rink. I was always working with younger guys. I mean, I'm doing skill stuff in the summertime with a lot of, uh, 
like youth. So I'd add that we'd have skills schools after our coach be gone. I'd make sure the younger guys look forward to stay out with us, but you see them and they are, they're the machines and they're professionals at 15. So I always let them know, say, yeah, there's, there's a time and place, man, it's a job, but make sure that it's also the a hockey player's career only lasts so long. So make sure you have fun while you're doing it. I mean, there's fun and then there's fun, but make sure you're, you're enjoying yourself and that you're enjoying coming to the rink because if you're not, then it's, it's only going to go, it's only be a negative uh, experience. That's, yeah, that's such a great message. And uh, before we let you go here, Wacy, yeah, you know, we like to take some shots at uh, my shirtless cousin over there on the other side of the computer quite a bit on uh, on this podcast. So wanted to ask you, you know, are there any stories that you have about him that can embarrass him, um, you know, or anything that you want to say to to my friend Jeffrey over here on the other side of the computer? Well, first off, I'll take a shot. And obviously, I want to say thank you to Jeff um, first. I don't know if you've ever seen his uh, playlist on his phone or his iPod or his CD <laughs> player, his Discman. Um, so we would, we would all drive together in the morning to practice. <laughs> and it's 7.45, 8 o'clock. And I think he only had four artists on his, on his shuffle or his playlist. It was Blink-182, uh, probably some type of Nickelback. Uh, <laughs> And, and and either Good Charlotte or Lincoln Park, but he would not talk to us, and it'd be like a long drive or a short drive, whether it was. He'd have his headphones on at eight o'clock, blasting these, and like I think he just took some creatine or some type of energy supplement because he was bouncing <laughs> off the wall. And hey, and I'll, I'm all for morning, but this guy was like heads and tails above me, and like Jesse in the back. Like Jesse was freaked out for the first four months, but I knew Jeff since I was 20. So I just was whatever, but he would be vibrating and ready for practice. And, uh, <laughs> I'd be like, Hey, eight o'clock practice till 10, man. Like, let's get a coffee. Then I'll, let me get a coffee. Then I'll catch up with you. But I mean, Jeff was either gyrating from his pro shakes or protein shakes or whatever, or was trying to suntan in January when it's minus 40 out. And <laughs> her a shirt. Oh my god, gyrating! Oh my god, oh, I don't listen to Good Charlotte. Easy. <laughs> but in all seriousness, no. I mean, Jeff, we we played together pretty much every pro team I played on. Um, I didn't. I wouldn't have gotten a job if it wasn't for you going to Japan. I mean, you've been a great guy. We always catch up. I mean, I got rid of Snapchat, but we had some good fun on there. Yeah. Um, so I just want to say thank you and allow me to to share my story on here, especially you, Topher. I don't know you. I'm sure I'll meet you one day down the road. But Jeff, he was he's one of my favorite teammates and one of my best friends. So if, like I said, you you go through hockey, you meet people, and they stick with you. And Jeff's one of those guys. He he wasn't the most skilled, but I mean, he was the hardest working guy I've ever played with. He worked on those details. So I mean, he wasn't stick handling through guys, but he was a guy that worked on his craft and he scored some goals. And they weren't the prettiest goals, but he, he did it and he was there and he can, and he can, he's not, I know he's not playing anymore, but he can be proud of what he accomplished. Thanks brother. Means a lot, man. Tolford. And to finish, I just, I just want to ask Wacey, uh, Wacey, what do you, what do you got going on in the summers now? Well, um, other than hockey, my other goal was, it was an opportunity for me. It just, it just fell into my lap the last two months that I'll be traveling through the Southern Western United States, through Nevada, California, uh, I think we're going to Texas. That's as far east as we're going to go. But Tof, I don't know if you ever seen Over the Top. Uh, we're doing actually an arm. I'm doing an actual arm wrestling tour. 
so that if you guys are in those, no areas, way, really? I'll be touring through there. <laughs> no, oh, I was like, what? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I got wasted. Yeah, yeah. yeah he told me that did. yesterday. He's, uh, he got me. No. I'm like, what are you doing in the summer? He's like, oh, you know, I'm going to run some camps. I'm going to do this. <laughs> I'm thinking hockey camps. He tells this story for like five straight minutes. And he's like, you know, the arm wrestling, the arm wrestling on ESPN 6. And I'm like, you piece of shit. <laughs> the Ocho. Yeah. Unreal. Waste, man. I can't, I can't tell you thank you enough for, for taking an hour out of your day. Um, something we haven't talked about on, on this podcast yet is face off, surprisingly. Every every episode we do, we get into something new with somebody to help our listeners. So means a lot. And uh, Tolf and I are both super excited that you're still playing. You had an unbelievable year last year. You popped 29 G's. You're getting better with age. You know, old balls, loose skin, gross. But you're still doing oh, so. And uh, yeah, I was supposed to ask you if you're you're on the all ugly team. Uh, I hear that's one of your uh, your big sayings too, huh? <laughs> Yeah, we're uh, thank God we're on the podcast because I got a radio face. So I'm fitting well <laughs> with this group here. Eh? Very well. <laughs> you got yeah. to send a picture of that stupid face you make and let us let us be that the advertisement for this. You know what face I'm talking about? That that friggin' scary beer face. face. Yeah. Oh my God! Please send me a picture of that face and let us let that be the advertising for this podcast. Our <laughs> listeners will love it. All right, I'll see what I can do. Maybe I can archive something or I'll have to make a new face. Yeah, buddy. Love it. Thank you so much. Appreciate you taking the time, man. Thanks, Jeff.